This AIM Hometown Innovations podcast is sponsored by American Structure Point, a full-service architecture and engineering firm. Since opening our doors in 1966, American Structure Point's mission has been to improve the quality of life in cities and towns across the country. We are proud to partner with AIM. Please connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit StructurePoint.com to learn more about how we help build better communities across the nation. Welcome to AIM Hometown Innovations Podcast. This podcast is designed to offer insights, best practices, and innovative solutions for the challenges facing Hoosier cities and towns. Each edition will offer ideas and inspiration while showcasing the talent and commitment of Indiana's local leaders. Enjoy the program. Welcome to AIM Hometown Innovations Podcast. I'm Jennifer Simmons with AIM. I'm joined today by the authors of The Innovation Delusion, Lee Vinsel and Andy Russell. Lee is a professor at Virginia Tech and studies human life with technology, with particular focus on the relationship between government, business, and technological change. Andy is the officer in charge at SUNY Polytechnic, well, excuse me, at SUNY Polytechnic Institute, a professor and writer focusing on technology, computing, complex systems, and history. Also joining us is Ames Communication Direct, Communications Director, Aaron Jamison Koenig. Uh, all of you, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, thanks for you. having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. I asked Andy and Lee to join us today because IMMA, the Indiana Municipal Management Association, recently read their book and met with Andy. Managers from across the state and different sized communities connected to the book and the idea that maintenance is vital to local governments. I thought Andy and Lee's perspective on innovation and maintenance would be a fun addition to our podcast lineup. So Andy and Lee, without giving up all your secrets, um, can you please share more about the innovation delusion? Yeah, well, I mean, Andy, you want me to take a first crack at it? All right. Um, yeah, I mean, our, our book came, the, we all, it's, the book is part of a larger project. We also started an organization called The Maintainers, which, it, you know, is a, community of researchers and artists and other folks who are interested in maintenance and repair. And both the projects really started from um, kind of frustration, which with the way that innovations talked about in our culture, um, whether that's in kind of the tech world or in journalism, or, you know, we're both, we both work in the higher education industry and it's just a word that's kind of thrown around so much. And we, we just really felt like the way it was talked about was missing a lot. And the kind of launching point for the maintainers was uh, Walter Isaacson, the famous journalist, his book, The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution came out. And Andy said we should uh, respond to it with a book called The Maintainers, How Bureaucrats, Standards, Engineers, and Introverts Create Technologies That Kind of Work Most of the Time. And so... You know, some people think we're like anti-innovation. We're not really anti-innovation. We're not anti-new things or anti-improvement. We're we're more critics of like hollow ways that we've we've come to talk about innovation in our culture. And there's lots of things we can say that that it kind of leads us astray in various ways. But 
you know, what we focus on mostly in the innovation delusion is how that, that innovation speak ends up um, uh, leading us to neglect the things we are, have already constructed and the people who do all that work of keeping it going because we become so fixated on the innovators. So that's the kind of basic picture and then we can drill in on any part of it. So um, you mentioned innovation speak, and it's a common thread throughout your book as well. Most notably, we hear it when Mark Zuckerberg's company moves fast and breaks things. Um, so do you think that this is a practical way for companies, especially local governments, to operate? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Um, you know, one, one nice thing about uh, local and regional governments is um, there's tighter feedback loops and um, in many cases they're elected officials or or the people working there are accountable to elected officials so uh, the constituents who uh, might be at the mercy of of a manager who decides uh, he or she's going to move fast and break things uh, can go to a meeting can talk to an actual person pick up the phone where um, I think some of the folly that that we see from that Zuckerberg saying move fast and break things it really epitomizes the detached arrogance of silicon valley where you couldn't pick up a phone and talk to someone at the company if you wanted to um, the products have just been foisted on us i mean yes we have to download the apps but the the way that it's been almost an intrusion into our lives has you know a lot of people have commented on that um, and the thing that's most <laughs> most grating about that motto is that um, it just doesn't work. Uh, it, it's a snapshot of, of the way that software development worked at a particular point in time when the costs of failure were low and venture capital was high. And so uh, they were just trying all kinds of stuff to see what would work in uh, their definition of work is what would generate the most revenue and most return or, or jack their stock price up the highest. Um, it is such an inappropriate model um, for our industry education, as well as, um, as you know, local governments that provide services that people's lives depend on. Yeah, you could say like Flint, the Flint water crisis was moved fast and break things in some ways, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's just a model that doesn't work for a lot of other really crucial services that keep people alive and healthy and, and such. Yeah, it's, I think we're, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just a one follow thought. You know, the the truth in what we're saying is validated by the fact that Facebook itself um, revised that motto to be move fast with stable infra, um, which is, I guess, a cool way of saying infrastructure. Um, you know, so even that company matured, which is uh, remarkable, but um, even they abandoned this shallow way of thinking about innovation. Yeah, so I had another question in mind, but when you mentioned Flint, it, it brings to mind that maintenance, um, I couldn't agree more that it's neglected. Um, and it seems to me Flint was, it was not the wake up call the country needed, right? So I thought it might be, I thought yeah. it might be, okay, now we're gonna pay attention to our aging infrastructure, especially that invisible infrastructure that we all depend on and how it is decaying all across the country. Now we're yep. gonna pay attention, right? It wasn't that wake up call, was it? 
It should have been. Unfortunately, this is a lesson that our friends and um, colleagues in disaster studies, um, there's a whole field of disaster studies and um, they they kind of say this, that mostly we don't learn, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. there's always this narrative about learning from disasters. You know, it's going to shoot up lessons that will kind of take on board, but we just mostly don't do that, unfortunately. And that that is one of the saddest things. It truly yeah. is. It truly is because um, really we just don't act until we are at a catastrophic phase. And when you're talking about sewer and water, I yeah. mean, there's no greater catastrophe, right? Really, for our our well-being. Um, well, remember, after Flint, it was like there was studies, journalistic studies, you know, articles coming out saying it was hundreds and thousands of U.S. communities had too much lead. And I remember that being like big news for like a week. And then it's just like, we're just going to push that back under the, under right. the rug. That's right. It's and a, even in Jackson, Mississippi, with the situation yeah. there, um, it was a big story for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then it went away. And oh, OK, right. one must have fixed the problem. No, no one fixed the problem. I think it's just such a, it's a large problem. It's like we can't wrap our heads around it. So we'll just bury our head in the sand, right, and, and, and hope hope for the best. And um, I do, I also want to talk about technology and innovation from the perspective of how we, you know, without technology and innovation, we wouldn't have longer lasting pavement for our streets. We wouldn't uh, be lighting up city hall, town hall with more efficient lighting. We wouldn't be generating utility bills without a meter reader, right? Um, so without innovation, without technology, wouldn't maintenance costs and even the cost of doing business for a local government just be exponentially higher, right? Yeah, abs absolutely right. Um, and this is, the examples you cited are great examples of how innovation works in reality, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the fantasy, you know, Silicon Valley um, right. parable of, of innovation that it's some lone libertarian genius in his garage. It's always a, a man in his garage coming up with a great idea. In fact, where the most impactful innovations come from uh, are groups. Uh, mm -hmm. It comes through learning in, in complex organizational settings and it's incremental. And so uh, the LEDs, for example, mm -hmm. um, the process of coming up with, with LED bulbs and making uh, the price of those um, manageable and affordable, mm -hmm. and then for a city um, to come up or, or any organization to develop a plan to replace its existing lighting stock with LEDs, all that's a step-by-step -step process, lots of committees and teams involved over the course of many years. It's not this flash of aha moment. Um, right. So part of what we wanted to do with the book is to really encourage people to, to be more realistic about their notions of innovation and to, and to really attack this cartoonish version of what people think it's all about. Yeah, I think like one of the, um, you know, I, I'm a historian and I've spent a lot of time looking at the progressive era, for instance, and I, one of my favorite journals and magazines from that period is called the American City. And it's just like this, this it's, it's municipal it's a, a book for a magazine for municipal managers and may, mayors to buy all kinds of mechanized machines. They're doing things, you know, using to make cities better, parks and roads and all this stuff. It's amazing. 
you know, but like those people were not talking about innovation. There was so much change before the word innovation takes off in the after the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And part of what we sh we show is that it's more the like theories of innovation, the ways of talking about innovation that have taken hold often just haven't um, kind of produced the results we want from it. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of positive change came from much more grounded ways of thinking about improvement, looking for potentials for improvement. And, and so it's really, like Andy said, it's really a more a lesson about realism and thinking about mm -hmm. how positive change comes to be, yeah. So making sure that when you're innovating, it is the most common sense innovation that's going to help you achieve your goals as a municipality, right? Is that a good way of yeah. saying? Yeah, and it's not magical thinking like, you know, creative class changes or, um, uh, you know, or you know, or science parks, for instance, which have a very bad track, rec track record, innovation parks and, and such. Um, you know, usually if, if it's a complex theory about how you're going to do something and that's going to induce innovation and then you're going to get growth and all these things mm -hmm. out of it, the chances that's going to work out are much lower than let's adopt a new uh, system for dealing with uh, lights in town because it'll increase our efficiency, which is a much mm -hmm. more grounded, hands-on way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. That was a good pun, by the way, lighting. <laughs> 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 All my puns are accidental. I wish I was good at them. <laughs> Love puns. Yeah. Um, so pivoting slightly, when you speak to local government leaders and those that work to support communities, um, whether they're directly involved in the community or just um, a volunteer that works with the community, what do you see as the most critical type of work that needs to be done um, to further communities across the country? In my mind, it's about uh, relationships and communication. Um, that's really what um, keeps uh, elected officials and, and city workers um, grounded, uh, to use Lee's uh, accidental pun, um, in their communities and to understand what, what the people actually need. Um, and that's also from the leadership point of view, that's how they bring people along to say, hey, look, I know you've got your heart set on on a new football stadium, but uh, we could really use that, you know, $400 million to, um, to help repair some of our roads or to help address the, the problems um, underground in, in waste treatment or whatever it might be. So um, it, it's really about being part of the community and being responsive and, and, <laughs> and then finding ways to make sure that, um, the less uh, buzzword laden or less sexy activities get resources as well. Uh, because it's really, uh, or it's not really easy, it's easier to get resources for things that carry all the buzzwords, not so easy to get resources for things that um, either people don't recognize our issues or recognize need resources, or that we just assume should have been taken care of. And we're only shocked when we learn it doesn't work, when we learn a whole city's water supply is poisoned. Whoa, you know, that I can't believe it. How did that ever happen? And then, and then, like we said earlier, we just carry on with our lives as if it didn't happen. When mm -hmm. in fact, it's we know that the patterns of neglect that made that happen persist even to the present day. And that certainly plays into a lot of the funding that we see in local communities that federal and state funding, um, a lot of them go to new and innovative projects. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily the maintenance that needs to happen. 
Mm -hmm. yeah, I remember. They will, you know, and oftentimes exclude maintenance explicitly mm -hmm. in those formulas and grants and whatnot. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, one person we draw heavily on is Chuck Marone from Strong Town. So I imagine mm -hmm. in your world you bumped into you before. And Chuck has this crazy story from his younger years where there was a town that had a terrible wastewater problem. It was actually the sewer systems were just leaking and the water was moving between the sewer system and the, the water pipes. I mean, it was just a mess. Mm. And he came up with a maintenance plan uh, and, uh, you know, he, he wanted to get it funded and there was no way to fund it with federal funding. Um, so what he did is he came up with this giant new project, which was he was it was doing it just to justify putting the new pipe, repair the pipes, and that got funded. But what, well, you know, his point is that, you know, he was a hero and there was like Chuck Marone day in this town and they served him hot dogs and stuff. But like, you know, like his point is then what he had done is set this town up with a liability, this giant right. wastewater plant that they had no business having. And they didn't, they weren't bringing enough taxes to, to ever pay for it or maintain it in a serious way. And unfortunately, like this is just too common. You know, we have cities that are really in difficult, not just cities, but small towns that are in really difficult places with their infrastructure and like how to deal with that is, I think actually an existential question for our nation is how to mm -hmm. help help these places out. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, you know, we have, we often have a lot of speakers and educators and, and presenters, um, and you mentioned this in your your book as well that discuss creativity and placemaking as a key to community development and with such a mobile workforce these days i mean even in indiana we have uh, about a million people that work from home that's for us that is um that's a lot and that number is growing and so with that mobile workforce you're you're now trying to compete in a different way than you ever have. You're competing mm -hmm. for people instead of projects, right? Which mm -hmm. means amenities um, and things you haven't, nor maybe as a city or town you haven't invested in, um, but now you need to. So how do you suggest, like, what are, what are your thoughts? Like, how does a community balance, like, hey, we have to do the basics well, right? We have to do the basics perfectly, but we also need to look at that creative placemaking side and, you know, maybe the innovation in some respects um, to attract this new workforce. So it just seems like, so not, not a complete contrast to what you, to the, some of the things you talk about, but maybe a new wrinkle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's an interesting question. What do you think, Andy? That's a really hard question. You know, I mean, there's a couple of things that happened between the point when we finished the book and and now. Um, one, of course, is COVID, mm -hmm. and uh, so the we had a, a national moment again to our earlier theme that seems to have come and gone, where we all supported essential workers, but right. um, Congress just whiffed on uh, mm -hmm. bills that would have provided things that essential workers said they wanted, including uh, paid family leave. Yeah. And just better insurance, better, uh, you know, um, minimum wage, you know, all the sorts of things. So that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened is this remote work thing yeah. that, that you're talking about. And I think it, I think it works well into the, the frame that we used because it is just, you know, just as your question pointed out, 
it forces people to think about that balance mm -hmm. um, between what we want to take for granted, but we can't just take for granted. It takes work. Um, right. And then all the, all the kind of cool stuff right. uh, that can happen as long as the core is strong and as long as the foundation is strong. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think in our book and in the maintainers where I feel like we've made the most progress um, in advancing the discussion about that is to, is to get people to think about problems at different scales. So mm -hmm. the problem that you just described, um, which is one that we're experiencing right now in New York State as we go through the budget, uh, the last <laughs> days hopefully of the budget cycle, um, is uh, you can see um, parallels to that at mm -hmm. different scales. And so the example I'll use is the scale of the individual so um, we know that in our, in our bodies, um, if we wanna do new things, let's say I wanna run a marathon, I couldn't just do it today. There's a bunch of things that I need to do to get right. in a position to be able to do that and to go to the after parties and to you know, get the pictures on Facebook and, and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Um, I need to pay attention to some fundamentals about diet, exercise, um, very uh, disciplined uh, strength and conditioning, that sort of thing. And so th there's a kind of a basic maturity in being able to think about that for oneself mm -hmm. um, or in one's community and to make those trade-offs and to be mindful about it um, and not just do what you know my kids do, which is to go for the Fruit Loops or the, the Lucky Charms every morning and then sit on the couch. You know, mm -hmm. you, you gotta you gotta put a little bit more into that so so that your core is strong and that your your kind of center is strong and then you can do other cool things. So that, that's what comes to mind when, when thinking about that question. Yeah, that just made me think of getting a Diet Coke with your Big Mac. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is, um, I think, you know, I, you know, I'm a historian and, you know, I, my book, my current book projects looking at the last 50 years of, um, of jobs, basically, and uh, job quality is about like why like 40% of American households these days can barely afford to make ends meet. That's what I'm trying to explain mm -hmm. using this history. You know, you know, I would just point out that like, because I'm spending a lot of time in the 80s and 90s right now. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of projections around what's going to happen to jobs and work that are around all the time that never that don't pan out. Right. And so mm -hmm. remote work was actually something that people were predicting in the early 90s. There was a bunch of waves of prediction around it and like work from home and all this stuff that didn't happen, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that and, and this is just like, uh, you know, it's about prudence is, is my message here. Like it's it, it, remote work is happening. And, and when, but the question is how big and how, you know, how much more it will grow versus contract. There's really big questions here. And so. I think that, you know, as cities think about these issues, they need to be very prudent and careful and not go along with the hype ar yeah. around remote work because you can take big risks like people did with like Richard Florida's ideas and it just doesn't pay off. You know, you can put in all the all the, you know, the bike racks and all the cool, you know, like pie shops and everything and think that's going to get you what you want and it just doesn't pan. So, I mean, it's a call for, you know, prudence as well. Right. Right, that makes sense. Well, gentlemen, thanks for being on. Aaron, thanks for joining today. Um, we really appreciate your work. This is a, it's a great discussion, hopefully a discussion that we continue 
to have over time. I do think it's going to evolve. Um, is there a, a sequel to the book in the works? Oh, Andy and I are always working on on various things. We have a um, you know we have a project, a slow burning project on universities and and caring cultures, uh, and God knows what else we're going to get up to. Before before we sign off, though, I just want to say that Andy and I are big fans of uh, municipal uh, workers and managers. We really have thought mm -hmm. a lot as we work through the maintenance stuff. We really thought a lot about towns and municipalities. We're both believers in local action and the importance of local spaces. So we also want to thank all your listeners for doing the work they do. That's great. Thank you for saying that. And I also noted earlier when we were talking, you're making sure to include small towns in this discussion. And that means a lot to us because our members range from the city of Indianapolis to towns of less than 300 yeah. residents. I live in Appalachia now, so if I, I would just be ignoring my own reality if I wasn't doing that, you know, and it's also where my wife comes from a very small town in central Illinois, so it's a part of my life. Andy also has limited small town experiences. His wife comes from a small town. Yeah, so. that's why I appreciated your comments <laughs> regarding scale, because um, we do try to, to, when we're educating our members, to say, no, you're not, you know, the city of Indianapolis, but perhaps there are some things you can scale down to yeah. fit your community. You just have to think a little differently. Yeah. When you're taking totally. in that information. Yeah, I, I love that message. And, you know, as a concluding comment that that there are examples that people can draw inspiration from. Um, we've talked about when things go wrong or when disasters happen, but more often than not, there's pretty diligent professionals and, and experts working really hard to make sure nothing goes wrong yeah. and, our, and our water and power and all that arrives just fine, just like we need it. So mm -hmm. like Lee said, you know, we, we tip our cap to those people. And, um, and that's one thing you'll find in the book too, is a lot of lessons on how the people who got it right, what they managed to do to get it right. So, yeah. uh, so there's a, there's a silver lining in all this that uh, we know how to do it. And uh, we just need to, like, like Lee said, you know, focus on on what works and and be prudent about making those choices. Great, thank you both for joining us.